Hello everyone, uh, my name is Kelly Fox and I am here with Terry Williams of Ohio Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice and this is our new podcast called Our Soul where we talk about how faith is connected to our belief that um, everyone should have a choice over their own bodies and we also want to talk about how uh, our faith leads us to just work for all kinds of different justices and how all of this is interconnected. So um, we're just starting this off today. Yeah. With a conversation. So uh, let's just start off by introducing ourselves a little bit. Um, so like I said, my name is Kelly Fox and um, I'm the, or one of the faith organizers at Ohio RCRC. I am currently a student at the Methodist Theological School in Ohio, and I'm studying practical theology and social justice um, with a specialization in feminist or queer feminist and womanist studies. Yeah. Is there anything else I should say about myself? I go to school, I work places. Pronouns? Yes. My pronouns are she and they. And that's a that's a bit about me. And my name is the Reverend Terry Williams. I'm an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. I am an alum of the Methodist Theological School in Ohio um, with degrees uh, in biblical studies and uh, ethics. <laughs> Not that anybody really cares about what your degrees are. They care about what you do with your degrees. And for me, I am a parish pastor and a faith organizer with the Ohio Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice because faith and reproductive choice are essential to my life and to everybody's lives. Um, And my pronouns are he, him. So as we're recording this um, a few days in advance of uh, when folk are going to be listening uh, right now, here at the beginning of the week, um, I think we're all looking at Columbus, Ohio and the actions of the police that were taken this last weekend and just thinking, what in the world is our world coming to? We have so many things going on right now uh, in terms of social action, social movements that are... Uh, you know, have been pressing along for so, so long and are finally making a tremendous amount of headway. BLM is just making fantastic change in the world. We're having a lot of intersectional conversation and intersectional solidarity and action among many different groups who frankly have had similar struggles and have not been as close in the fight as they could be for a long, long while. We've got uh, folk in the queer community. We have folk now in the business community coming out in support of Black Lives, and it's just been a a hell of a few weeks. Um, You know, what is it like as we sit here with a landmark Supreme Court decision last week? It seems like forever ago, but just last week, uh, we found that LGBT persons are protected in terms of employment decisions in this nation. Um, And yet here we sit still amid the struggle for black lives, still amid the struggle against police brutality. Um, It's hard in this time, I think, to not acknowledge how all of these are so deeply interconnected. You pull on one strand and and the whole system shakes. Yeah, um, I think 
last week when the uh, decision, the Supreme Court decision was announced, um, honestly, I think a lot of people breathed a little sigh of relief, relief and um, thought that this was going to be like a good movement forward. And then, um, as you talked about before, like the actions of the police this weekend have like kind of re <laughs> recentered the need for action. And um, especially as a person of faith, like I have seen these things like as really interconnected. Um, I've been looking at the um, June medical versus Russo case um, and thinking about that, that another Supreme Court decision that's like affecting all these issues that are so interconnected. Um, and then also looking at the things that are happening in my city and um, the ways that people have come together, um, lots of white people, which is like really great, um, and uh, lots of black people and other people of color coming together to um, fight this, this big systemic system. There's a lot of people that I've been talking to that are just waking up to uh, the fact that it's, it's not just like black men are being killed specifically, um, but it's that uh, the system wasn't built for us and the, the system wasn't built for anyone who is not like rich and white and um, very privileged. So uh, it's been interesting to, to see all these connections and um, to be, I don't know, I don't usually do this, but um, to be like really scriptural. Uh, recently I've been thinking about, there's this one, um, passage, it's like, um, talking about the body of Christ and how it's like all connected. And so to paraphrase, it's like the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, need you. And the hand cannot say to the ear, I don't need you. Um, all parts of the body are interconnected and need each other. And there's another part of that scripture that is, um, not as often quoted, um, that says like uh, the parts the parts of the body that uh, don't have honor are given the most special of honor and um, the parts of the body body that already have honor do not need that special honor um, and it specifically talks about like God gives um, the the parts of our body that are hidden away the most special of honor and when though part, those parts are hurt, the whole body is hurt. Anyway, uh, I think now kind of that interconnectedness in the way that we are all affected by the hurt of what may seem like the few um, is being really at the forefront of everybody's minds. Absolutely. And I, you know, I think for me, um, as a person of faith, I see such clear clear connection between the moral action and the movement for black lives um, and and faith of all kinds people who are people of faith regardless of their religious tradition regardless of their background have a certain ethic around the dignity of human life around bodily autonomy around agency and all of these things play into not only our work with reproductive freedom, but also with this movement for black lives. Um, you know, I, I find it interesting, the, the different ethical traditions and how they, they shape uh, people's understanding of what their responsibilities are. My, my Jewish friends uh, remind me often uh, of the tikkun olam, you know, this, this kind of hopeful prayer in, in rabbinic Judaism that reminds us that 
the work that is before us is not there because we began this work. We did not begin the work, but it is not ours to finish, and also it's not ours to leave. We must carry on the work, even though we won't be the ones to finish this work. And I just think about the generations of people who have labored, labored hard and long in fields of reproductive freedom, of defending people's access to abortion, of defending people's access to simply be able to parent the children they have in safe environments. And to know that we stand on their shoulders this day and get to see a, a coming of age that they didn't get to realize in their life. There have been many who have labored and died and are not here today to see the kind of transformation that's happening in the society. And we owe it to them to throw our backs into this and, and really press on every front for that kind of intersectional liberation that we're looking for, where the eye and the hand and the foot and every other piece of the body gets to live free. Because that's what this is about, all of us living mm -hmm. free. And it's it's really interesting to me, um, even when you're uh, talking about the different parts of just like re repro and um, repro reproductive justice. Um, I think if you take most of the issues that we're dealing with right now, um, like if you you can you can view any of these uh, big issues that we're dealing with right now um, in the light of whatever is like most important to you. So for us as like people who are fighting for reproductive justice and um, reproductive rights, like you can look at the movement for black lives and say like, we are doing this for the ability for black families to live without having to fear for um, like if their kids are gonna be killed or without having to fear about um, the the kinds of privileges that their kids may or may not be able to have, or just like the right to have a life, you know, that, that um, the, it's like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I think for a long time for um, uh, especially um, black people in this time and also um, like queer people, um, the immigrants in this country, all of those things, um, or all of those groups have not truly had those rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I think at the undercurrent of all these different injust or um, movements for justice is this desire for everyone to have the same uh, access to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And um, I, I don't know, that's, I, I've just been thinking a lot about like the interconnectedness of all this and um, I've been having a lot of like big conversations with my friends. Uh, I explained like how um, the prison, prison industrial complex includes uh, white supremacy, capitalism, and patriarchy <laughs> all at the same time and how uh, like those th three big oppressions like infiltrate our entire lives and these are things that some of my friends like because they're um they're white and have grown up a certain way they just like have not even had to think about and so i don't know i just think like right now is like the um it is a very fertile time for us to be planting the seeds um, and hopefully watching the seeds that have been planted before grow um, and maybe even we'll be able to harvest them, you know? 
Well, and and Kelly, I really love um, I love the way you've situated that. You know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and it's everybody's life, everybody's liberty, everybody's pursuit of happiness. I've had a lot of conversations with uh, friends in the past few weeks as well, and you know, I'm I'm kind of frustrated in many ways because I have a lot of uh, friends who don't understand that deep, deep, deep connection between all of these different levels of oppression. There's a sense that, um, you know, white supremacy is what people in robes with hoods over their heads do. And there's not an understanding that there's a much deeper culture there. I was speaking with a, a dear friend of mine here this week who told me, well, you know, I understand uh, where many of these people are coming from, many of those protesters, but I don't understand why they insist on saying everything is white supremacy. And she went on to try to explain to me, she said, well, you know, for me, white supremacy is, you know, the people kind of in the far reaches of my rural county, you know, that there are parts of this county that I would not advise people to go to, people of color um, or, or other uh, folk who are targeted by white supremacists. I wouldn't encourage them to go to after night. And I, I had to stop and, you know, take a moment with her. I said, well, yeah, I, I totally understand that there are places in this county that you are afraid to go to after night because of hooded white supremacists. But let's be really clear that there is no place right now in our nation that is, quote unquote, safe for black lives. Right. I mean, you take a look. John Crawford was trying to shop in a grocery store. Tamir Rice was out front of his home. Breonna Taylor was inside her home sleeping, and they still were not safe. So you don't have to go in search of white supremacy to get white supremacy. The, the other yeah. piece for me really is that when you look at white supremacists, they explain to you by their own behavior and their own actions that white supremacy is not just about race. It's rooted in race, but it's also about religion because white supremacists are inherently anti-Semitic. It is about class. It is about the control of other people's bodies. You know, we hear, um, you know, David Lane uh, and the Order, you know, having this, this ideology around the 14 words. I won't repeat it here, but, you know, the 14 words are recognized by the uh, Anti-Defamation League as a fundamental uh, confession of uh, the white supremacist groups and the key to the 14 words at the very end is that they want to secure a future for white children it's all about children it's all about bearing children it's all about forcing people to use their bodies to produce more white human beings in a struggle of violence against everybody who doesn't look like them act like them believe like them or hold to their ideology and for me you know, people ask me, well, why do you why do you think everything's so interconnected? And my response is always because the hate groups tell us and they show us that it's all interconnected. The hate groups know that LGBT folk and Jewish folk and people who are engaged in this fight from many different angles are all part of the fight because they're fighting us as well. I have yet to find a white supremacist yet to find a single one that thinks Jewish people are good and righteous and fine neighbors. I have yet to find a single one that thinks LGBT folk 
should be given any kind of latitude or freedom in the world. So as they're hating black bodies and brown bodies, they're also hating all of these other people. And I feel like we've been for so long these scattered groups that haven't realized we're being hated and hunted by the same people. The only difference, I think, and, and I think it is an important difference, is that we've codified the hating and hunting of some people into the law much more clearly than others. Um, yeah. it, it's and, been much, um, much deeper for, for people of color. I think, like, often the individual movements are so focused on, like, trying to get, you know, supporters for their movement and supporters, like, monetarily or, like, with their time um, of their movement without realizing that, honestly, we're all working together. We're all, we all have the same enemies, and if we can quit fighting each other, like, we can have this more... Um, bold and uh, embrazened force against uh, the common enemy that we have. I'm just reminded of the phrase mission over brand because we are here for the mission over the brand every Mm -hmm. single time that um, you know like with Ohio RCRC and our repro partners we show up for other struggles because there is no other struggle. Every struggle is our struggle because anywhere where a person is struggling that is a place where we will find and liberation. And the thing is, like, uh, and this is something that we talk about um, in our next episode, but the the other side is already combined. You know, they've they've already like connected each other on their um, on their being anti all the things. That's why that's why when talking about the opposition, you can just say anti. You don't need to say like anti repro or anti black. Like they're all the same people. Um, anyway. But they're already connected, and so um, if if we can see this interconnectedness, the easier it'll be to like fight back against it. Um, yeah, totally. and it's I, just. And I think for me, one of the things that gives me a great deal of strength is to look and recognize all of the connections that have already been made between resistance groups have really sustained all of our movements for the last hundred years. I mean, you see the movements feeding each other and helping each other. We have survived the onslaught of hatred and this anti-organized system. Antis have organized into state level and national level systems to oppress these groups for decades. And we are still here, not because we have simply survived on our own, but because we have bound ourselves together with that interconnected care for one another that just keeps thriving regardless of what gets thrown on us. And I'm looking forward to the day when, when our thriving in resistance turns into thriving without resistance you know when yeah. when we are able to thrive without this this kind of organized system oppressing all of these movements um yeah. you know when when we're able to have full access to a full range of reproductive health care for everybody local in their community oh lord be still my heart and let the day come when, when that might be so right and also to have uh reproductive health care that like you don't have to think about like who who your doctor is so like um something that we also talk about in a future episode is um i as a black woman have to be careful about like who i go to for my health care 
because I don't know if if I go to a white male doctor, like, are they going to be sexist? Are they going to be racist? Are they going to undermine my pains and the things that I think might be wrong with me? Will they be willing to medicate me for my mental health issues? Are they going to be willing to give me pain medicine when I am in, like, a great amount of pain? Um, I mean, the when the day comes that I don't have to worry about what what doctor I go to. I don't have to scour my insurance company's lists of covered doctors to find a woman of color, like gynecologist, um, to make sure that I'm not, I've literally had friends warn me not to go to, um, like to be careful about who my doctor is because like they wouldn't, uh, understand when I got my IUD put in. Um, so when the day comes that we can all truly be free, it's just, I, it would be amazing. I recently um, had this like Twitter thread where I talked about, um, I was recently asked like, what, what would you be doing if you weren't, like, if you weren't having to deal with oppression, specifically around being black? And I was like, if I, if I wasn't dealing with this oppression, or if I wasn't dealing with, um, patriarchy or if I wasn't dealing with capitalism I would literally be a teacher like the the thing that I wanted to do when I went into college was um I wanted to be the kind of person who or the kind of teacher that if my students were having issues at home or if they were um you know just like dealing with stuff like they could come to me and talk to me about it and feel like I was a safe place um that isn't necessarily their parents if that's something that um they need to talk about and that's kind of the, the kind of one-on-one -on -one, like care that I wanted to give. Uh, but then I started thinking about all the, or because of the schooling that I had, um, I started learning about like all the oppressions in the world and all the things that we have to fight against. And I felt that I would better be suited to work for these big fights that are causing the kids to have to come talk to me as a teacher. Um, but that's all, that's all a part of like that idea of, um, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, if if we all that when that day comes that we all have freedom, the freedom to be happy, the freedom to do things just because you want to do them, not because you have to have this like like big uh, you know moral obligation. I mean, like there is a moral obligation, and there will always be a moral obligation regardless of if these big systemic oppressions around race race and um gender and everything else um, regardless of if those exist um, there will still be traumas and things you have to think about morally um, but not to have a moral obligation to fight against like big injustices when that day comes like what will it look like for black people to be free um, in a class that I took last semester eco theology um, or it, it was eco Eco-theology and global ethics, that was the name of the class, and I talked about, in that class, we had to do a, it was called an outside learning, where we would literally go outside for 20 minutes three times a week, um, and write about, like, what we learned about ourselves there, or, like, what, um, how our outside learning connected to our reading, and so something that hit me was, like, looking at the land and thinking um, of the ways that I've tried to specifically tame my hair. 
um, and thinking about like what would my hair be like if when I was a kid I didn't try to relax it several times to try to you know fit in with my white friends or what would my hair look like if I hadn't like destroyed it coloring it would I have had to cut it all off what would I be like if I wasn't always trying to like dim my blackness when I was younger um, who would I be as a person and those are questions that like I don't I don't want future generations to have to answer. Like, I, I don't want there to be a question of, like, oh, I was um, repressed because of, like, white supremacy or because of the capitalist system. I had to choose money over my, like, dream career. Um, or because of the patriarchy, I wasn't able to take on the leadership roles that I really wanted to do. Uh, I want people to be able to, like, not not have to, to think about the ways that um, they've been shaped and tamed by the world. Um, I just thought a lot about like how uh, when looking at the land and the way that we've reshaped it, like what what would the land look like if nobody had touched it? And then reflecting on myself, like what would I be like if nobody had um, uh, shaped and reformed me? So anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little rant about my experience with that class and um, kind of the, the hopes that I have for the future. One thing in your comments that um, it just it just clicked on for me, um, you were talking about the right for life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. And when you set it all together, it was the right to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. And that phrase, the right to life, is the big phrase that antis pull out and try to beat people over the head with mm -hmm. about reproductive freedom. And I find it really interesting because whenever that phrase is used, typically what folk mean is not the right to life as you would have it or the right to life as you would live it. It's the right to life as I decide you should have it, the right to liberty as I decide you should use it, the right to the pursuit of happiness as I decide you should pursue what I pursue. Mm -hmm. And I think the true definition for, for us in freedom is the right to decide what is the life that I want, what is the liberty that I'm going to exercise, and what is that pursuit for me of what makes me happy. You know, for yeah. you, ha having that conversation, you know, if, as a queer person, uh, you know, I, I share a similar um a similar what ifness of a lot of things in my life that I look back and say, you know, what if I had not been so interested in pursuing other people's happiness that mm -hmm. instead I had pursued my own? What if I had not dimmed down who I was in order to let the rest of the world shine into my life, but instead said, no, if you can't handle my brightness, get yourself some new shades, right? Like figure it out and find a way mm -hmm. because I'm just who I am. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I think that is the overarching question that binds so many of us together, regardless of the struggle, whether it's BLM, a struggle for uh, immigration rights, a struggle for LGBT justice, struggle for disability justice, a struggle for, you know, whatever wave of feminism we're on right now, hallelujah, it keeps moving forward, right? All of these different elements that have just been asked, can't you tone yourself down? Can't you just be nice? Can't you just get along with the straight 
white, male, wealthy, patriarchal system that doesn't want to be disturbed. And we are saying as a whole in the society and specifically uh, in our work with Repro, no, we're going to disturb all of this. We're going to topple down any system or statue or monument to any life that is not in congruence with that freedom. A life that is glorified because of its attempt to limit other people's safety, to limit other people's life, to limit other people's freedom is not a life we want to glorify. Sorry, Christopher Columbus. You get to take seat someplace else, right? Confederate yeah. generals, you belong in a museum down in the basement. Love y'all, but there's a lot more important stuff we need to be putting out on the street for our people mm -hmm. to look at. While you were talking, I was thinking about the uh, I came so you can have life and have life abundantly. And I think when, when uh, antis here like have life, they're just thinking about the birth. You know, like the the existence of life. But what what does having life abundantly look like? And um, I think that regardless of the situation, um, whatever the thing is, I think having life abundantly is something that somebody should be able to decide on their own. And I don't think when uh, I don't think when Jesus said that um, he meant that you had to have it a certain way that somebody gets to decide what abundance looks like for you. Um, and so, yeah, so I think we need to, you know, fight for, I will reclaim the right to life because uh, I don't think the, the right to life doesn't mean the right for other people to decide what my life looks like, you know? So I just want to reclaim the right to living because yes. I think part of the struggle is that people who call themselves, um, quote unquote, pro-life, mm -hmm. um, don't want to have the conversation about why George Floyd is not living today, mm -hmm. or why Breonna Taylor is not living, or why Tamara Rice is not living. Like, I want a right to living. Mm -hmm. I want a right for people who are living to keep on living mm -hmm. and to not be interrupted by decisions of the state, right? Because the state made a decision to execute a no-knock warrant and to murder Breonna Taylor. The state made a decision to send its agents to put a knee on the neck of George Floyd. The state made a decision to murder Tamir Rice in his front yard. Um, I want a right to living, right? Uh, you, you talk about a right to life, whatever in the world that means, because folk are fighting harder for, uh, you know, what, they perceive as uh, necessary legislation uh, to protect a fetus, then they are willing to fight for their literal flesh and blood neighbors who are alive in their community, who are living in their community, and who now many of them are no longer living. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a fundamental inconsistency with me. And, you know, I, I think the pro-life movement needs a lot of therapy about that yeah, if, you sure. can't, if you can't care as much about your neighbors as you claim to care about other people's pregnancies um there's some real problems there the other the yeah. other struggle i have obviously is the bodily autonomy issue because let's be honest here like folk need to have control over their own bodies right 
but we need to have control over what happens to them. That reminds me of a, a quote from the, the protest that I went to on Saturday. Um, one of the people from Be Quick, I think it was Kema, said, I want to live in a world where Black trans women only die from old age. Right. And I think that just kind of reiterates this like right to, to living. I mean, I feel like that represents um, a lot of the oppressions that we're facing and a lot of that intersectionality um, is wanting to live in a world where Black trans women, these, these people who are the most often, I feel like, targeted and harmed and not taken care of and ignored um, when they die, like, I want to live in a world where black trans women only die from old age. Amen. And I think that's a, a good, a good quote and a good way to um, speak to that, yeah. that pursuit of living. As, so, as a minister, I had to do um, clinical pastoral education and I did my CPE in a nursing facility. And I can remember having the conversation with my cohort where lots of people, you know, they, they were asking questions like, so wh where are all the black folk in these nursing facilities? Where are all the queer people in these nursing facilities? Where are all the transgender people in these nursing facilities? And I can remember our, our supervising uh, uh, minister said, well, you have to remember many of those people didn't make it here. And there, there was like a washing realization on several members, I can remember my cohort, who had never thought through the dynamics of why these key oppressed groups were not widely represented in our census, in our population. And the reality is the world killed them before they got to enjoy life and life more abundantly in old age. Mm -hmm. So I, I do. I, I join you, Kelly. I want to see a world where black trans women only die of old age. You know, where, where we can see these populations of folk who have known deep oppression in our lifetimes live to a ripe old age and enjoy the fullness of life. Amen. Well, uh, that is all the time we have um, for today, but I hope that anyone listening today will join us in the future. Uh, we will be on at least Spotify and um, Apple Podcasts starting out, and uh, we hope to have conversations with you more um, and talk more about this um, pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness um, and how intersectional that all is. So uh, thanks for joining us today and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks so much for joining us. And again, this has been Kelly Fox and Terry Williams for the Ohio Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice. Check us out at ohiorcrc.org slash podcast for an extended version of today's podcast and lots more.